come to my chauffeur. This one is a bit of a wild card. When I chose this one, I had a very strong feeling that you wouldn't like it. Well, you were very nearly very correct. Right. Um, Can you tell me why you had that feeling? There's two problems with this film. <laughs> there's at least two problems with this film. One is that the plot makes very little sense. Um, and I think that's because it's two scripts that have been mushed together into one film. But also, the entire film hinges on whether or not you like Deborah Foreman's performance. Ah, uh, yeah, now we come down to it, yeah. Um, which I think is like nothing else I've seen. Her confidence is incredible. And I think it sells the film, and I find her incredibly likeable. However, I can also understand that she might be incredibly irritating to other people. Which camp did you fall into? Both. Right. Because I started out... Well, this is, this is, we're getting way ahead of ourselves here. So, yes. <laughs> Let's get, let, me go through, let me start by going through my notes. Um, I wrote down, it's an old-fashioned style of a shooting and acting. It looks like when it begins, and it just looks kind of cheap and cheesy and old-fashioned. I've written, even the colour stock looks dated. As the movie progressed, I wrote, it's so bad, it's bad. <laughs> it's a John Waters movie that doesn't know it's a John Waters movie. And I really didn't like the soundtrack. And I'm not talking about the songs here. Is it, this the bizarre uh, string? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, like, it's like John Cage writing for a sitcom. <laughs> that music later becomes part of the film as well, which is even stranger. But the whole tone in that opening sequence with that music does not match the film you're about to watch. And it's a film that changes genres all the way through. One minute you're watching uh, a bizarre screwball comedy, the next you're watching a road movie, and then it turns out it's a romance film, and none of it really comes together as one solid film. But what I love about it is Deborah Foreman. Well, before we get to Deborah Foreman, I still want to keep parading. <laughs> the music is by a guy called Paul Herzog, who's got some quite distinguished uh, credits after that. But I noticed that they, they tend to be for thrillers. And the music for this was kind of for a science fiction thriller or something. It's, it's like very it's serial in the sense of John Cage or something like that, uh, Philip Glass. And it's really intense and intrusive and it's, it's completely at war with a movie. So that's why I didn't like it. I just felt that it, it was completely distracting from the film. Anyway, don't want to bang on about that. <laughs> So I wrote, it's so bad, it's bad, which is a very cool thing to say. And it's not what I eventually felt because I, you see, Deborah Foreman comes on. I could see what she's trying to do. She's trying to be kind of, all right, let's give the set up. So <laughs> it's about this uh, limousine agency, this very uh, high-end chauffeur firm run by this rich dude who's played by E.G. Marshall, who, by the way, is a very distinguished American actor. And at the beginning, he mysteriously sends his butler out to find this, turns out to be this girl who's working in uh, washing dishes in the kitchen in the back of a, an Italian restaurant. This is already one of the problems, is that I assume that's his butler as well. It's not his butler at all, it's just one of the chauffeurs who occasionally helps him out. Yeah. Again, not explained very well. Not clear. Well, yeah, but th these these butlers are strangely, sorry, these chauffeurs are strangely butler-like in that they actually refer to them as gentlemen's gentlemen at yes. some point. So this chauffeur goes, he finds her, gives this girl a letter. And next thing you know, it's fish out of water time. She's joining this, she's the new recruit for, amongst all these crusty chauffeurs uh, who are very sexist and very against hiring her. 
But it's immediately, the fact that the old rich guy has had her sort out at this point immediately suggested to me that she was probably his, his daughter. Da you know, illegitimate daughter. And just to jump way ahead, that kind of pays off in... Well, should we leave that for a moment? Well, would you I want to think get into it? the intention of that yeah. is to lead them to the assumption that they come to as well. Lead the audience, sorry, to the assumption that the, the characters come to about the fact that they might actually be brother and sister. Yeah, so what happens is... And that, I think that's basically the setup for that gag only. <laughs> that's Well, so what happens is that she then uh, has these various customers as a chauffeur who are all eccentric and troublesome, and one of them turns out to be the son of the rich guy, and they end up having a uh, whirlwind romance, and then we think for about two and a half minutes, we think they might be brother and sister, because that seems to be the way it's going, and there's a big revelation that... Is it that she's not his daughter or the son's not his son? Uh, she's not his daughter, I think. She's not his daughter. Yeah, because this other guy, this other this other crusty chauffeur who's been really mean to her claims paternity and yeah. they sort of have a reconciliation. Generally, the first time I watched this film, I couldn't work that out. It wasn't until the third time, I, and I've seen this four times, oh, it wasn't until the why? third time that I finally figured out what was going on there. It just it isn't very well explained. Well, it's it in the dialogue. When you go to yeah, when you go earlier on in the film, it doesn't quite make sense. You mean that the build up to that doesn't really work? Yeah. Well, this is this is movie. I don't a, fully understand what hiring her achieves. But this is this is your. I mean, you're the guy who loves this movie. But what I, I wanted to say was, so it's a comedy, and basically you have this fish out of water. She's been hired to to be this young female chauffeur amongst all these old male chauffeurs, and there's lots of hand fisted attempts at humor, which. Like there's a bit where she spills water on this guy's crotch and she's rubbing his yeah and it's just so it's sort of sort of pitifully done. But I actually wrote down the line because this was the line that won me over quite early. Stop masturbating my chauffeur. Yeah, um, she comes and she goes, "I'm coming here to be a limo driver," and he says to her, "If you keep masturbating my driver, you're going to be a murderer." And I really liked that line. It came out of nowhere. It's a very strange. Uh, another point that same character uses the term bollocks. Yes, and he does. It's, it's a strange script. The humor is very English. Well, the guy I'm, right I'm, down to the fact there's almost a Benny Hill sequence in the park. I mean, yeah, I think they're borrowing from. It's written and directed by David Beard, about whom I can find nothing except his other credits, hmm. and which are not good. Well, no, and the, the, here's the thing that, that really startled me was that I thought this would be his first movie, and then he'd go on from it. He'd done a couple movies before this, which doesn't, which means I'm less inclined to forgive him for the the crude, the primitive way this is shot and, and the sort of clumsy and amateurish way that it looks. But this is the 80s and anything could get made and anyone could be a director throughout the 80s because you well, have the home video market. I had this sudden revelation about what kind of movie this was supposed to be because this was the the period of movies like Something Wild and After Hours which are Jonathan Demme and Martin Scorsese yeah. which are, those were also called yuppie torment movies because they're about yuppies who are precipitated into uh, wild situations but they were both also kind of modern screwball comedies with a dark edge about uh, absurd things going on and this felt to me like it was although it's not a yuppie torment movie it did feel like it was that kind of thing and it was part of that wave of films and I sort of thought oh I can suddenly see why they might want to make a movie like this at a time like that did it feel that you were watching a vehicle for her rather... You know how you look at something like Ace Ventura and you think, this isn't a great film, but Jim Carrey is doing a great job as the lead and he's doing exactly what they're asking of him. I didn't feel it was a vehicle for her because I felt she was just kind of precipitated into it. And was sw I felt that she was just swimming in the wreckage of the Titanic as it sank. But well, 
let's look at... I mean, this was 89? Uh, mm. This film was made in... Uh, it was made in 1986, released in 86. Right. I mean, how many films around that time, three or four years either side, have a female lead? And we're not talking like a, a female lead with someone else, like a romantic comedy. Well, this must have been about the time of Desperately Seeking Susan, because she was dressed like in that sort of faux punk look. You know, yeah, what, but we're talking about Hollywood Madonna here. Everyone imagined. knew who Madonna was at the time. Yeah, we're talking she, about Deb, who's heard of Deborah Foreman? I, look, um, you, you're building a strong feminist case in defence of this. I'm not. I'm just saying that the, what I like about this film is that she is a female lead who actually does lead the film. I thought you said she was in The Night of the Comet. No, you're thinking of Catherine Mary Stewart. Okay, that's good, because she's not in Night of the Comet. I was going to take you to task. She is, however, in Valley Girl. So, uh, Which was very nearly also on our list. <laughs> okay, now, so that you asked me what I thought of, of, of her performance, and I said, if I thought both those things, because at first I just thought, she's really straining to be ditzy and funny and, and uh, lovable, and I just wasn't buying it. But... There were some moments of comic genius. Like, there's a bit where she's talking to someone. She just she keeps just inserting, like, she keeps trying to fit her dialogue in around him. And that was brilliant. It's just really funny. And I th that began to win me over. And then she just, there's a couple times she has really great physical comedy. Like, there's a bit where the drunken Sam Jones has collapsed in her bed and she's trying to find a space to yes. fit herself in. She's a very gifted physical comedian. Well, a gifted comedian, generally. I'd I really say. like her Scarlet O'Hara as well later on, where they're stuck out in the in the desert trying to find their way back. And she's just made an umbrella for herself and for some reason just keeps ranting on about Tara and how hot it is. Yeah, and I just... You know, she, she has a genuine little bit of comic genius, I thought. Um, I think slowly but surely she wears you down by the end of that film. <laughs> Much like she does the other characters. And so she's, and I've written that um, she sometimes overdoes it, but but she's really a trooper. And he, even you can see her in long shot where she's just this tiny figure, and she, you can still see she's doing gy comic gyrations. She's still doing physical comedy even when she's just a tiny figure in the landscape. She's working way harder than the film deserves. Yeah. And Sam Jones, on the other hand, who I really only know from Flash Gordon. Okay, I've this, not seen him in much else. This is a very strange... Like, he's the major figure in it because he's the son of the rich man and he's the romantic interest. So Sam Jones, he's this really tall guy because he was a professional athlete, right? Hmm. And he's supposed to be... I mean, he he sort of gives a performance. I mean, he's not dreadful, but he's there's no depth or nuance to that performance. There's not, but that sequence in the park where he's drunk does not feel like Sam Jones. And you think, wow, this... This guy's going for it. Yeah. And later on, I think he sells it quite well when he um, he calls the woman in and she hasn't got the report ready yet. And he says, yeah, well, what time did you get in? She said, I've got in six o'clock. And he says, yeah, he, again, we were talking about Scrooge earlier in the yeah. context of another yeah. film. He, he starts out, he's set up as this business tycoon and we see him being nasty to his staff. And then later on, after he's been redeemed by love, we see him being nice to his staff. Yeah, well, I think he sells that quite well because he didn't sell the nasty very well. He's, well, he's not too terrible, but he's he's a very strange physical presence because he's this huge looming guy and she's just little tiny thing, which is, you know, a classic setup. But he, he's not very appealing. And so the romance doesn't... We don't really buy the romance. I didn't buy the romance. I don't buy the romance either. And the romance is sold to us like... They, the car breaks down. 
I don't want to get into it, but it breaks down because he insists on let, making her overheat it even when she doesn't want to. I, I, I'm sure a Rolls Royce wouldn't overheat that easily. But anyway, uh, so they trek, trek, trek through the desert for miles and they find this strange cabin with these comic archetypes who turn out to have this huge spare bedroom with a roaring fire and then they make love in front of the roaring fire in a thunderstorm in this really embarrassing sort of I thought I thought they're going to do the full you know erotic love scene thing and they almost do which is a bit disconcerting in a movie like this and I felt very uncalled for that scene I like for a different reason okay and you know exactly what this is going to be which is you've got two people with no money um, who are living quite happily in conditions that they've accepted, and they welcome them in. They just welcome these two outsiders in, in and they make them home. And... Into what turned out to be a palatial mansion that they're yeah. living in. Yeah, well, this is, I, I, like, I like the silliness of that, but also the fact that they seem to set them up to shag each other. It's like she presents her to, she brings yeah, yeah. her into him, and like, yeah. oh, this year she is. And he's laying there in yeah, his tidy whities and... It's very dubious. Is that the scene where uh, he keeps telling her to shut up and then finally kisses her and then she melts completely it's all yeah. very dubious that business it doesn't like you say the romance does not work and i wonder if it's the chemistry between them or just the writing it's probably the writing but i do think with a better actor it might have been it needed yeah. somebody who could play it. she's too much and i don't think sam jones is man enough to stand up to her i don't think he's equipped but she is a comet it's a, you know it's a ball of fire that's true and she is but look at her other credits before and after and there's not a lot there and I don't understand where this film came from. Somebody clearly had faith in her, and she paid them off. Easy. I mean, she more than delivered. Yeah, but this is... Yes, I mean, all this is true, but it, I don't want to give him... And it's a strange movie, because there's this bit where she's... There's various little vignettes of her as a chauffeur. Like, yeah. she, she's... Um, there's a guy whose girlfriend is dishing him because he promised to take her somewhere in a nice car. So she, she comes up like a guardian angel and pretends that he hired her. And there's this other very strange bit featuring... But that sequence, again, ties into earlier in the film where the moment she gets the job, she's given the manual of how to behave and she says, I won't call anyone sir and I won't hold doors open for people. Oh. And it's not until she's there and she hears, she's overhearing this woman berate her boyfriend yeah. and she saves the boyfriend. She bails him out. She calls him sir. She opens the okay. door for them and well, she lets him in the car. Journey. Well, the guy, the guy who wrote and directed it, whose name David is David Beard... Beard um, I felt he was a better writer than a director. I thought the script held water in the sense that it, um, all that business about, oh, wait a minute, they're brother and sister. Oh no, it turns out they're not. It was just simple carpentry. I'm not saying it was a great script, but it, it all made sense. It all fitted together. In a way, for instance, uh, we were talking about an Italian film earlier. In exactly the way that those Italian film scripts don't add up and don't make sense. You can argue with whether this is a good or an interesting story, but it's coherent and it's paced and it all pays off. So it was a good piece of carpentry in that. I felt in exactly the way that David Beard didn't do a great job on the directing. I, as I said, I thought it was his first movie, so I was willing, more willing to forgive him. It's kind of low budget and it it's, does these silly things. Like there's a, there's this, her first client is this terrible <laughs> supposed punk rock musician called Catfight. Yes. And he turns out to be a rockabilly musician for some reason. Is he even English? He's supposed to be English, but um, it's American English, so yeah, Dick Van Dyke esque. So, anyway, in in the course of dealing, the, I think you were men, about to mention your notes about yeah. So they're driving Catfight to his gig, and Catfight, who's got these three groupies with him, sees this woman with blue hair and a blue dog, 
I think they've got some kind of uh, scoring point system where they have to, if they, they're going to get thousands of points in their own private little game if they steal her knickers, steal yeah. her panties. And this is, I just thought, this is just sort of cringeworthy attempts at comedy. It's, the sequence comes from nowhere. Well, you've already had this, this is what I mean about the tone, is you start yeah. off with that bizarre um, string music and you've got the, the yeah. letter being delivered to her almost like a fairy tale. It sort of hands it, down it, it, from it, person to yes, person. Yes, and it flutters down from the sky too. And it, you think you're going to be watching a very different film. And within about five minutes, you've already had the masturbating line. And then suddenly her first client of the day, and they're basically molesting an old woman in the park and her yeah, dog. Well, that gives entirely the wrong impression because like, this woman is walking her dog and when they begin to attack her, she begins to whirl the dog around her head like a, like a bolo or something. Of course, it's not a real dog, but it's that kind of cartoon humour. But what I like about that sequence is that it sounds ridiculous, but the whole point of that is when she gets back to the chauffeur agency and they're basically feeding back, he's having to describe these events to her and you listen to it and you think that can't possibly have happened, but we know it's happened. So you're kind of with them on this that, you know, Okay, so let me get this straight. You you grabbed an old lady in the park. You took her underwear. You know, for our first day on the job, this does not sound good. Doesn't bode well. What I was working towards, though, is after all this nonsense, and it is nonsense. It's not a mm. comic masterpiece of the sequence. It's one of those things where you think they they're really trying to make this funny, and it's not. They get what is funny is when they get to the gig. It's they even call it the stadium. Catfight is supposed to be on at this huge stadium. And they do this bit where he's walking through the corridor, the backstage corridor, towards the stage of the stadium. And he, he, it goes on and on and on. But when he comes out on stage, it's in this little tiny basement club. It's essentially a house party. <laughs> yeah. But it's not as though that's the gag. That's We're supposed to think that it is a stadium because there's this bit where she comes in and watches him. And she's sitting in this sort of upstairs staircase, which is shot in such a way that she could be high up at a stadium. But it's just... It's just slightly pitiful. <laughs> and weirdly with that is that that leads us to about 24 minutes in, I think. And then we have a four-minute music act as well. And it feels like you're at the end of the film. Feels well, like, well, this should be where the film actually happens. What happens is before Catfight comes on, there's this other band playing. Uh, I've forgotten their names, but I can easily look at But anyway, most... I think one of them's surname is Beard. Oh, is it? Well, yeah. But, but the band is... They call something like The Hats, and they get they get all this credit. Uh because most of the soundtrack is, is their songs. Mm. So let's have a look at what's... Uh, dee, 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 dee. Uh, uh, uh. Yeah, this. Yes, Dead Air is what we like. <laughs> oh, this is so useless. Why don't they give credit for the songs? The Wigs. They're called The Wigs. The band's called The Wigs. And, uh, so who's in The Wigs? There's nobody but by the name of Beard in The Wigs. So you're getting Wigs and Beards. Mixed I think there are writing credits maybe for the songs. So anyway, they're, they're friends of the, of the producer or whatever. And so I didn't mind their songs. I didn't like their songs, but it wasn't like the, the underscore, the, the instrumental music, which I thought was really weird and, and didn't work with the film. So this is a very weird movie. I, I started off thinking I really didn't like it. But by the time it was over, I thought it's such a strange, variable mess because I ended up quite liking her. And she was capable of being very funny. But it was in such a deformed setting you know it was it was hard for her to shine and i just thought what a strange move for people that you know people have put a lot of money into this film a lot of people were involved in making it i felt that a little bit with the film uh i woke up early in the morning the day i died right. but the thing about that movie is that's full-on weirdness whereas this one my chauffeur aspires to be a kind of conventional Hollywood comedy. Oh, and we haven't mentioned Penn and Teller yet. Because there's this <laughs> credit at the beginning that says introducing Penn and Teller, 
who I know very well as a magic yes. double act. And I thought, well, introducing, this must have been very early in their career because they're very famous now. And they don't do any magic at all, basically. They're just, as I said, this is a series of vignettes about this chauffeur and her customers, her clients, and that she drives this Arab prince, this sheikh. Played by Teller, <laughs> the right. least Arabic-looking guy ever. You can imagine. Uh, yeah, and then uh, this hustler infiltrates the, the chauffeur, and ba- sorry, infiltrates the limousine, and he sort of hijacks this dignitary... I think he's supposed to be uh, the ambassador from the United Arab Emirates or something. Anyway, yeah. he takes him on a on a wild night at clubbing and all the rest of it. And it's uh, it doesn't fit in the film at all. In uh, its eight minutes of it, really irritates me that sequence. Well, the thing it is, it goes on way too long. Uh, it might have been fun. The thing is, I agree with what you're saying, but also Penn and Teller, what they were doing is effective. It's an effective little comedy, like the guy. Uh, who's playing Bone, which is the name of, of, the, of the chap who sort of kidnapped the, the dignitary. And he's ta- Pendulet. Yeah. So he's taking, he's sort of getting this guy to let his hair down. He's taking him to wild parties and stuff. But I thought they were, they were both doing a good job of what they were required to be as these two characters. I didn't, didn't particularly like the sequence, but I thought that they carried it off well. What I find interesting about that sequence is if you watch it through, on my second watch, I was looking out for this. Foreman's nowhere to be seen. It feels like it was all shot much later. And she has, added she has a bunch of reactions to it. Yes, but shot, they, just they could have been in. shot anyway. Yeah. They're cut in, and all the sequences actually in the bar and everywhere else she she's not seen. And there's okay, never a shot with all three of them. Um, so this was it's nearly a, always a shoulder shot, so you can't actually see her face. So this is all just sort of this. This was just an additional bit stuck on. I wonder if maybe yeah, the film tested badly and they threw that in at the end as an extra sequence. And it's also got some the world's most um, uncalled for nudity in it. Well, maybe it was called for to help sell the film. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's part of the problem with that. It doesn't help the film one little bit because the tone it's been setting up up to that point, it's intercut that sequence with uh, Sam Jones's uh, coming to terms with what an arsehole he's been throughout the whole film. Yeah. <laughs> His emotional that. journey yeah. of discovery. Yeah, that's all true. However, what I thought about this sequence... And everything you say is, I agree with, but I liked it in the sense that there's a lot of striving to be funny in this movie by people who aren't funny. Whereas <laughs> Penn and Teller are, very, are a good double act in the classic American tradition that's, you know, descends from vaudeville. They're a couple of pros doing their shtick and their shtick is effective. Whereas before, especially amongst these, the, the, the chauffeurs of this kind of gallery of grotesques, all of whom are supposed to be really funny, but in fact, they're not. And there's various other characters who are supposed to be funny and also misfire. I think Penn and Teller did what was required of them. I'd be interested to see what they think of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, just in terms of their oeuvre. Well, it's such a strange movie. Um, I, You know, it might be the one I've enjoyed least out of these movies. So, so you were kind of right about that call. But the sinking feeling I had near the beginning didn't persist. Yeah, I, I I just think, like I say, I think she wears you down eventually, and by the end of it, you just you realise that it's going to be very hard to dislike her. She's capable of moments of, of comic genius, but she's also uh, a bit annoying. <laughs> I think that kind of sums it up. I would say it was a lack of direction. I I think the fatal flaw here is the script wasn't bad. I think he needed somebody else to direct it, not to direct his own script, because. There's a lot of things here that could be easily fixed by just doing the same material but doing it better. So it's not a, not a flaw of the script 
it's it's a flaw of the treatment of the script. Well, you can't win them all. Oh well, but it was fascinating, and and like that Penn and Teller sequence, I'll never forget. Which is weird because that's the bit I hate most from that. Film. I'm not saying it's the best bit, but it's sort of like just a. It's such a bizarre, but bizarrely uncalled for, self-contained little comedy routine. Did you notice? And right, embarrassing too. It's quite embarrassing. Right at the very beginning, the the restaurant that she's working at, two doors down, is a Penn and Teller show as well. <laughs> so it's basically a Penn and Teller, a covert Penn and Teller vehicle. That's very strange. Very odd. Oh well, on with the next one. I've also made this note that it's so nice to see Stephen Hawking looking so well, which is a cruel joke about one of the one of the uh, chauffeurs. He's, he's got a very. I know the one you mean. Yeah. The one she was masturbating. Yes. Yeah. But I've seen him in some other things. He's just anyway. He's a bit of a scarecrow of a character. Right. So what can we say to, to round this out? Sam Jones' finest performance. Well, yeah. I mean, much like Roger Moore in Man Who Haunted Himself, this is. The most I've seen Sam Jones do in a film. And But hang on, you've actually seen Deborah Foreman in something else, haven't you? Valley Girl. Uh, not much of a role. Oh, okay. So yeah. that, and that's it for her. There is a nice interview with her on YouTube, which I think was uh, one of the extras on the DVD for this. And it's interesting hearing her talk about how Hollywood worked at the time and how she didn't really want to stay part of that and was much happier just bringing up a, a family, which happened, unfortunately, to a lot of actresses that we missed out on probably some of their best work. Gina Davis is one that springs to mind. She just vanished all of a sudden at the height of her powers, although she's back now. And what do you think of this movie? How do you how highly do you rate it? I absolutely love it because I think Deborah Foreman is incredible. I, If one performance can sell a film, um, I think that's impressive, especially when... If you don't have the previous... Uh, experience to back it up you know if you've just basically gone on instinct and been lucky to get a lead in a film and you've managed to pull it off i think that's pretty incredible well, she I, certainly tries like hell and sometimes succeeds against yeah. all the odds and i think there are some brilliant moments for her in this and i wish she'd done more stuff i'll, I'll go along with that yeah. she deserved better yes <laughs> deserved better than I This has been a podcast by Matt West and myself, Andrew Carmel. And very importantly, big shout out to Joe Kramer, who did the fantastic theme music, which you heard at the beginning. Mm-hmm.